Welcome to Langstaff Online. My name is Michael Da Silva and I am your host for episode 19. This is Easter Sunday. It is because of the past great event of this day that we remember Jesus every Sunday until he comes again. Sunday is the eighth day, the day of new creation, and that's what the resurrection signifies. Jesus lives in a resurrected, glorified body, and that gives us the blessed hope that we will live just like that also. On this happy occasion, Stephen Vance is going to continue his study of the Psalms by examining chapter 2 and the joy it offers us as part of the new creation in Messiah. It's Easter Sunday, and the message is rejoice. Jesus comes out of the tomb and he meets the women who have come to search for his body to anoint it. And he says those words, greetings, Cairo, rejoice. And I've titled this, Rejoice, Your King Reigns. We've been going through a study of the Psalms, and if you've been following this, you'll know we looked at Psalm 46, a sort of a, a prayer and praise of the Lord as the refuge of his people in the context of disaster. We also looked at a Psalm of Lament, particularly Psalm 22, and it brought us to Good Friday and our Savior's passion on the cross. He quoted from it while on the cross, My God, why did you forsake me? Showing us that it's a messianic psalm. But now we want to come to another psalm, Psalm 2. It's also messianic, quoted in the New Testament about Jesus, but it's a royal psalm, and it's going to take us to Easter Sunday and our Savior's exaltation by his resurrection and installation as God's King. We've looked at the theme of kingdom in the Psalms, and just to retrace it again, of course, David, one of the most common authors of the Psalms, was uh, Israel's greatest king. And uh, his place in the Psalms is big, especially at the beginning in the first two books from Psalm 1 to Psalm 72. Not only do we notice his authorship, we also saw that the Psalms were collated as a book after the exile. And a number of pieces of information make this clear. For example, Psalm 88 and 89 are composed by Heman and Ethan the Ezraites, suggesting the time of Ezra after the exile. But even more telling, we have Psalm 79 and 1, for example, where Asaph says, O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins, suggesting the destruction of Jerusalem. And then, most graphic, Psalm 137 and 1, by the rivers of Babylon, where we sat down and wept when we remembered so we have David, a great king, one of the big authors. We have composed post-exile, and we can imagine that time period. The people would have wrestled, wondering, what on earth is happening? Our great king is dead, and the kingdom seems to be in disarray. Who will reign for us? And the Psalms in poetic form paint that picture. David had been at the beginning their great king, but now the kingdom in disarray. Who will reign? And so in the center part of the book of Psalms, we have in the 90s those Psalms called the enthronement Psalms. When the answer is given, the Lord will reign. 
Psalm 93 and 1 and 2. He is robed in majesty and his throne is everlasting. Psalm 95 and 3. He's a great king above all gods. Psalm 96 and 10. The Lord reigns. The world is established. Psalm 97 and 1. The Lord reigns. The world rejoices. Psalm 99 and 1. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. And the, the, the composite image is that although David's kingdom seems to be gone, the Lord is still in control and he is re reigning so that his people can move from the lament so prevalent in the early Psalms to the praise and the hope that is clear at the end of the Psalms. So I want you then to turn with me to this second Psalm which is also a royal psalm to anticipate all the royal psalms that will come later. And let's read it together. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge. As a royal psalm, this psalm not only speaks of God as a great ruler, it speaks of the rulers on earth. And there's different uh, words in Hebrew used for these rulers. They're called kings, verse, uh, verse uh, 2 and 6 and 10. Melech is the Hebrew word. There's officials in verse 2. And then there is the Messiah, verse 2, the anointed one. And then there are the judges of verse 10. This psalm comes in four stanzas, each three uh, verses long. And it's very interesting to trace the king who is speaking and doing things in each section. If you just take a look overall, you'll see that. In verses 1 to 3, we have kings on earth, and they are raging against the Lord and saying, let's break their bands asunder and cast away their cords. They want freedom. But then, from verses 4 to 6, we move from earth to heaven. And now there is the Lord, and he is enthroned, sitting in the heavens. And what is he doing, not raging? He is laughing. He is mocking. And he knows what he will do. He says, I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion, undisturbed by the raging on earth. But then, in verses 7 to 9, we once again have the Lord installed as king on earth, and the declaration is made 
you are my son, today I have begotten you. And the psalm closes verses 10 to 12, again, the kings on earth, but now they are not raging. They are told to be silent, be wise, be warned, serve, kiss the son. And they are silent, receiving his instruction. What can we learn about our king, our Lord, Jesus, Messiah? The first thing that I want you to see in verses 1 to 3, as we look at the nations and their rebellion and their desire for freedom, I want you to see and I want you to rejoice in the freedom that God has given you. You see, the nations want freedom. They don't want God to put any bonds on them, any cords on them. They want autonomy. They want supremacy. They want independence the spirit of the world. It's very common. I remember attending a lecture once and the speaker, uh, he was playfully joking with his American friends talking about the Declaration of Independence. And he, and he said, you know, actually the Declaration of Independence biblically is, is heresy. Now, of course, that's just a political issue between countries. But remember the underlying spiritual truth that affects personalities of people from all nations. The spirit of the world is a spirit of independence and autonomy. And they think it's freedom, but it's not. It's slavery. We were made to serve the Lord. We are created beings. And Galatians, of course, is the great New Testament treatise on Christian freedom. And, and what does it say about Christian freedom? Well, I read to you Galatians 4. Paul says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You see, biblical freedom means three things. First, it means we have benefited from the redemption in Christ by faith. Like Psalm 2.12 says, when you put your trust in the Lord, you are truly free. You've been set free from the law through Christ's redemption. But biblical freedom is also being in relationship, being in love, so that Galatians says, you're free because you're redeemed from under the law so that you might receive adoption as sons. And this is the picture. A son or a daughter in the family enjoying the full rights and the privileges and the freedoms of being in that honored position. This is what we have. We are in relationship with the Lord. And this is what God invites his people towards. And Psalm 2.12 says, kiss the son. Submit to him in love have a relationship with him and you will be free. But biblical freedom is not just benefiting from Christ's redemption and being in a love relationship with the Lord, but Galatians tells us it is being indwelt and controlled by the Spirit. Paul says, redeemed, adopted, and because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, and we have that filial freedom 
to look into the face of our Father, our Abba, with complete acceptance. Rejoice in the freedom God has given you. But in the second stanza, I want you to rejoice in the God who controls all things. Because as the heathen are raging, the Lord is laughing. They want to be free, but he is unconcerned. And he says, I'm not bothered by what they're doing. I am not at all disturbed or set ill at ease. And he says, I will speak and terrify them. How will he do it? He says, I will do it by putting my king on Zion, my holy hill. He installs his king. The enemies are silenced and God's power is exposed. You know, we live in a world that is tipsy-turvy, and sometimes we, along with biblical writers, lament what is happening in our world. But this passage gives us a necessary corrective. God is over all. He sees the evil, but he laughs. He knows what he's doing. We can rejoice in the God who controls but I want you, thirdly, not just to rejoice in the freedom God has given you and to rejoice in the God who controls all things, but to rejoice in reigning alongside your Messiah. Because in the third stanza, verses 7 to 9, the Lord says to this one who is going to be the installed king, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. You will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces. Who is this person? Well, we would immediately respond and say, it is Jesus, and we are right. But actually, the answer is a bit more nuanced, and I'm going to trace three levels. The first person that we need to think about is David and his successors, because in the book of the Psalms, especially the early ones, he was the great king. And of course, in ancient Near Eastern society, a king was often thought as a son of the gods. And, of course, God himself, the Lord, spoke to David with regard to Solomon in 2 Samuel 7, 14, and said the same would be true of him. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And so David was the first one, the first one to receive this promise. You are my son. Today I have brought you forth. And so scholars suggest perhaps Psalm 2 was a coronation ceremony or maybe even an annual enthronement festival that applied to the reigning king. But of course, we can't just think of David. We need to think of David's greater son. And of course, the New Testament shows us that this passage is about the Lord Jesus, who has been installed as the Son of God and God's ultimate king. Let me trace with you the three times in the New Testament, this verse 7, you are my son, today I have begotten you, today I have brought you forth. And we'll discover what each context means. In Acts chapter 13, Paul is preaching and he's introducing the life of the Lord Jesus and he describes how God through Israel's history had raised up many prophets. And he climaxes with this word in verse 32. He says, we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. As it is written in the second Psalm, 
You are my son, today I have begotten you. You see, that raising of Jesus is not at this point his resurrection. It's this idea that just like God raised up prophets to speak to Israel, God raised up Jesus and brought him forth to heal and to teach. Paul goes on and says, verse 34, And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. Which makes it even more clear. The first psalm, quotation from Psalm 2, is a reference to Jesus' prophetic ministry during his life. The second psalm, quotation, has to do with his resurrection. So Jesus was first brought forth as prophet in Acts 13, fulfilling Psalm 2. But the second reference is in Hebrews chapter 1, and the writer says this about Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today you see, in Hebrews chapter 1, it's not now Jesus as a prophet, but it's Jesus in resurrection. And he is being seen as the Son of God. The context is that angels, of course, they were considered sons of God, but Jesus is so much greater than them. None of them ever had this statement said to them, You are my son, today I have begotten you. A little problem emerges. If Jesus as the Son of God is greater than the angels, why does this passage link this with the resurrection? Because it says, by sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high, he has become as much superior to angels as the name, the name of Son he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The answer to this question is that Jesus never became the Son of God. He was always the Son of God. 1 John 4 says the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. He was the Son long before he came. But in the resurrection, he has entered into all the fullness that it means to be the beloved Son of the Father. And he sits at the right hand of the Father, having completed the work of redemption. So Psalm 2 is fulfilled a second time. Acts 3, he's brought forth as the prophet. Hebrews 1, he's brought forth as the son in resurrection glory. But then in Hebrews chapter 5, the Hebrew writer says again, So Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You see it now? This being begotten is being brought forth in Acts 13 as a prophet to minister to the people of Israel. In Hebrews 1 as the Son of God in resurrection to be exalted. But in Hebrews 5 he's being brought forth as the priest forever at God's right hand representing his people.
But what we've read in Psalm 2, the initial quotation is Jesus, not as prophet, not as son, not as priest, but as king. When he comes back to reign, and his reign will be universal. Verse 8 says, the ends of the earth will be your possession, and he will conquer. He will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces. So this psalm had to do with David and all of his his uh, descendants as kings. It has primarily to do with Christ as the great king. The most amazing thing is that these royal words apply to us. If you read, if you read in the book of Revelation, Revelation 2 and 27, the overcomer is prom promised this promise to reign alongside of Christ. And it says about the overcomer, he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. Jesus will reign. But Revelation says that we will rule as overcomers alongside of him. Revelation 20 says the same thing, verse 6. They will be priests of God and of Christ. And they will reign with him for a thousand years. So my sister, my brother, rejoice. In the resurrected Christ and the freedom he has given you stands a one. In the God who controls all things as he sits in thrones stands a two. But rejoice as you reign alongside the Messiah. And so, how do we respond then? Rejoice. Your king. He will come back. He will set up his kingdom. And so the kings of the earth who before were raging in the last stanza are invited and warned to be wise. They've been raging before, but now they'll serve and rejoice. You see, they're bowing before him. God desires joyful service not pharisaical service. In our hearts that used to be in stubborn rebellion against our Lord and King, we now bow and we serve with rejoicing. Not only do we rejoice in our service, but we love him. Kiss the son. Kissing a king or the ground in front of him was an act of humble loyalty. In fact, there's a, an account of Israel's King Jehu who's uh, depicted as kissing the ground in front of the Assyrian King Shalmaneser III on his famous black obelisk. But you see, we come and we bow before him, not just in submission, but in love. We rejoice as we serve. We love him and kiss the son. And verse 12 says, take refuge in him. This is the good news of Easter. Our king reigns. His full kingdom has not yet arrived. It will arrive in the coming day of our Lord's return. But his kingdom is no less sure. He has conquered Satan and sin and death. Good Friday is over. The victory has been won. Our king has been resurrected. Our king stands. Our king is exalted. Our king is coming soon. 
and he will be installed as God's monarch forever. This is the good news of Easter. Let's close with the words of a, of a poet, Avis Christensen. And this poem is called, You Are My Victory. And it says, I prayed for help. I prayed for strength. I prayed for victory. I prayed for patience and for love, for true humility. But as I prayed my dying Christ, by faith I seemed to see. And as I gazed, my glad heart cried, all things are mine through thee. If he does dwell within my heart, why need I strength implore? The giver of all grace is mine. And shall I ask for more? And need I pray for victory when he who conquered death dwells in my very inmost soul, nearer indeed than death, and more than conqueror in great things and in small? No need have I, but you have met upon the cruel tree, O precious, dying, risen Lord, you are my this Easter, hold your head high. Rejoice, your King.